We are continuing today with our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and I want to remind you at the beginning of this message, I think maybe even in particular more so than others, uh, that what we're studying is actually His Sermon. And I want you to think about that because as we move through it today, you are hearing the sermon of your Savior if you're a believer in Christ. You are hearing the sermon of God made man, of the one who left everything in heaven, all of its privilege, all of its wealth, all of its glory, all of its all of it, (laughs) and clothed himself in your humanity, inhabited the same ball of dirt that we do, and experienced personally a poverty far greater than anything that most of us have ever experienced and likely ever will, that through his impoverishment, which included his suffering and death, you and I, through faith in him, might be made eternally rich. There's your preacher. He's the message giver today. We've been doing this study now for, I guess, four weeks, and we're calling the study Blessing and Mission, and I want to tell you why we're calling it that. We're calling it Blessing, as I've said all along, because contrary to what you might be tempted to think, when you come to this sermon and begin to dig into it, and it begins to dig into you, when you begin to unpack it, and it begins to unpack you, when you begin to examine it, and then it does to you, quite unexpectedly, what it will do. It will examine you. It's like we come to Jesus, and one of the metaphors for him, incidentally, is the great physician, and he says, oh, okay, listen, you need an MRI, but not of your knee, not of your elbow, not of your shoulder, not of your back, not of your neck. I'm going to give you a spiritual MRI of your whole life. We're going to call it the Sermon on the Mount, and then we'll look at it together. When I told people that we were going to be preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, man, so many people came to me, and they were jacked. They're like, right on, we're going to do the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm thinking, it's been a while since you've read this, hasn't it? About week four, that's where we're at, you can tell me how much you're enjoying it. Why does Jesus give us the spiritual MRI? Why does a doctor do something like that? To reveal to us disease. And so that he might then go in and what? Stitch something together that's been torn. Take something out that needs to come out. It's for matters related to health. It's for matters related to life and salvation of a sort, if you will. And Jesus, as the great physician, not only gives us the MRI that is this sermon, but His Word is sharper. What? It's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, is it not? It's able to divide, we're told, from the writer of Hebrews, soul and spirit, bone and marrow. That's like the middle of your bone to the deepest hardest, most protected parts of you, discerning the thoughts and intentions of your heart and mine. Oh, the Lord wants to do some surgery. And surgery is painful. And so when we come to a sermon like this, and we haven't read it in a while, and we're like all excited, the excitement level just starts to kind of, you know, come way on down. When we really start to get into it, and we unpack it, and it unpacks us. And yet, nevertheless, the kind of life that Jesus is describing for us in this sermon and inviting us into, guys, is the blessed life. Now, what does that look like? It is a life of repentance. It is a life of faith. It is a life where we abandon ourselves and all of our energies and all of our whatever that we can do for ourselves and depend entirely upon the Lord our God because we've recognized, we've seen the MRI, we've sustained surgery after surgery. That the one we really need is Him. Look, He's inviting us into life with Him. 
And let me tell you, practically speaking, how that plays out. It plays out kind of like what he's describing in this sermon. It plays out in a life where by his spirit, in accordance with his word, the whole of it, not just this sermon, but that's where we're at, and it's pretty good. And in community with one another, we do what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. We die more and more unto sin. And we live more and more under righteousness. Does that not make sense? As you walk with the Holy One, should you not become more holy? More righteous as you're conformed to His perfect image? That's the blessed life. That's the fulfilled life. That's the satisfied life. It's the life in which we find our satisfaction in Him. So we're calling it blessing and mission because it's also the kind of life that takes the otherwise invisible Jesus, which is what He is today, isn't it? I have not run into him on the street. I'm guessing you probably haven't either. And if you have, don't like shout it out now. We'll talk later, okay? But really, it takes the invisible Jesus and it makes him visible. As his life begins to be manifested by you as you live this kind of life by his spirit in accordance with his word and in community with one another. Listen, this kind of life is a very different kind of life. It is an otherworldly kind of life and perhaps in no area more so than the one that we come to today. So we're calling the study Blessing and Mission. And today, as we pick up the study, the study, the Sermon of Jesus, exactly where we left off last week, his sermon. Here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that this blessed life that he describes and invites us into throughout the whole of this sermon, but this part two today is one that is lived by people who trust in God, bottom line, and not in wealth, not in money for their security in life and not just their security in the next life. Their security in this life, here and now, day to day, nitty gritty living. So here's the running question. And I want you to open your heart to this. I want you to let the Lord speak to you by His Spirit in this. I want you to be open to whatever it is He might want to say to you in this. In whom or in what do you trust for your security? We pick up our study today in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, where Jesus in this, His sermon reaches out and lays hold of the number one thing that we all hang on to and trust in for our security if we're not careful. It's money and possessions, and he says this. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, and it's clear that he's talking about money and possessions because notice what he says next. Where moth and rust destroy those treasures, and where thieves, and for that matter, politicians and corrupt business people and inflation and recession and all of this other stuff that we have to deal with in this corrupting world, break in and steal. It takes it away from you, but instead, Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And I want to pause here for a minute. And as a community of faith, and let me define that, as a group of people who have come together today under the banner of Christ and who profess to really believe in this place called heaven as much as we do well, earth, and who really believe that through faith in Jesus, heaven is our, get this, eternal home, eternal as opposed to this earth. How long do we get here, incidentally? I mean, none of us really know, but let's just play a game. 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, 100 years, 110, let's go buck 20. How long is that in comparison with eternity? I mean, like, how fast can you blink your eye? Not fast enough. Get the idea? 
So as that group of people, I want to feel the weight of the logic of that because Jesus is coming to me and he's coming to you and he's saying, okay, let me just ask you a question. Um, Why do you want to spend most of your time, energy, and effort storing up treasures for yourself in this place called earth where they are corruptible, where they are vulnerable, and where you can only enjoy them for this, well, how fast can you blink your eye? Well, it's not fast enough. When instead, you can spend most of your time, energy, and effort storing up for yourself incorruptible treasure that is incomparably valuable when you can make the comparison, and that you get to enjoy, don't miss this, this is cool, it's my favorite part, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and it just keeps going. The logic's irrefutable. I've tried to find a way around it. It doesn't work. Yet I will tell you, it is statistically undeniable that very, 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 I could keep going, but you get the point, very few American evangelical Christians actually do this, which means it's statistically undeniable that most of us don't. And I'll tell you plainly that when you don't, you have no concern for that, you don't think about it, it's not on your radar screen, you're not involved actively in anything that has to do with heavenly treasure and storing it up for yourselves, not only do you rob yourself of what could be yours for a lot longer than how fast can you blink your eye, guess what, that's not fast enough, but instead, but forever, but you rob the cause of Christ, both here and around the world. It is the bare, naked, shameful truth that most American evangelical Christians spend their lives storing up treasures for themselves in heaven while their churches, their Christian schools, their Christian missionary organizations, and the parachurch ministries in their own city that exist to serve people who actually have need, the poor, the hungry, teenage moms trapped in pregnancies with legitimately no choice, nowhere to go. Nowhere to turn. Single moms, barely making it, barely making it. Okay, those ministries get starved of the resources and of the ability to proclaim Christ in word and in deed that could otherwise be theirs if the people of God would only wake up to the fact that there is a completely different economy to the logic and power of Christ's statement and by faith embrace the next world more powerfully than we embrace this one. And here's the deal, that is not a popular statement. If you think it is awkward for you to hear that, I'd be happy to come sit where you are and you can come up here and just read that. More awkward for me. Really. I want to give you my defense. It's the only one I've caught. If it doesn't work, I'm sunk. Guys, I'm just preaching through the sermon of Jesus. That's it. That's coming out of the mouth of your Savior this sermon that we're studying. These are the words of the one who has a foot in heaven and a foot on earth, who has seen them both and forsaken the true glory of the one that he might bring it to us at the expense of his life. He's saying, man, how fast can you blink your eye? Because it's not fast enough. Let me tell you, there's a whole other economy, and I would ask you today, like if you're me and you've, you know, you're preaching through the Sermon on the Mount and you just finished it, verse 18, and now you get to verse 19, and this is it. I mean, I didn't choose it. It's, it's just, it's there. Do you skip it? You kind of just move quickly forward. You gloss over it. 
Do you state the principle and not then flesh it out in terms of the nitty-gritty details and realities of heaven and of earth? Because it seems to me that if Jesus is dealing with anything, it's the realities of heaven and earth in regards to this topic. And so again, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures where? On earth. And incidentally, that's not a suggestion. He's not coming to us with like a really cool sort of a heavenly investment plan and going, hey, you know what? I mean, if I was a financial planner, I would recommend this to you. In fact, I do. I recommend it. Give it a shot. It's an imperative. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and seal, but instead lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal, and incidentally, where you can also enjoy them forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. I mean, it kind of gets annoying at some point, and ever and ever and ever and ever. And we've barely gotten going now, right? And ever and ever and forever. So the logic is simple, irrefutable, at least to my mind. But we don't do it, and here's why I think we don't do it. I'm sure there are other reasons. Let me give you a few. Last week we talked about one. We don't do it because we find our significance in what we have, in our ability to kind of impress other people. People look at us and go, wow, and that's it. And we go, well, I guess that I'm important then. And so we store it up so that people will praise us, and the fickle praise of man becomes how we sort of pump ourselves up. And instead of finding our value in Christ, my goodness, could you be more valuable than one for whom his infinitely valuable blood was shed? Like, who other opinion? What other opinion matters at that point? It's like all academic. He's calling us to Him, you see, to find our identity in Him and then to be made free of other opinions and of having to gather stuff to garner them. And then secondly, I think we store up treasures here on earth because we find our security in those earthly treasures. And truth be known, you know, we don't trust the God of heaven to take care of us on earth Okay, and well, maybe not the way that we'd like for him to. And yet the blessed life that Jesus describes for us in this, his sermon, is one that is lived by people who trust in God, not in stuff or money or whatever, for their security. So let me ask you the running question, who or what do you trust in? Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but instead... Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, to which he then adds, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How many of you have heard that statement? Like, I grew up hearing that statement. Why is that the case? Okay, now listen to this list, okay? Be thinking about you. Because you focus upon what you treasure. You pursue, really and truly, what you treasure. You think most about what you treasure. You fret most most over what you treasure. You measure the value of other people and other things by what you most treasure. And you organize your whole life in such a way as to be moving you continuously toward whatever it is that you treasure. So then what do you treasure? What is it? Because Jesus says that where your heart is, or where your treasure is, rather, there your heart will be also. And here's what Jesus wants. You know, we we think that he wants our stuff. I don't want our stuff. You you think that Jesus is sitting up there going, I don't know how I'm going to make the light bill if this guy doesn't start tithing. I, I feel so deprived on the throne of the universe. 
It's silly when you think of it like that, but Jesus is a threat to us. Why is Jesus a threat to us? He's not if he is where we find our significance and security. He is if we find it somewhere else. What he wants is our hearts. What he wants is for us to organize our whole lives in such a way that he's the one that we're moving continuously toward and then finding in him all the things that we're looking for and and everything else. And so having said as much, Jesus now makes a statement that at least until you understand it, it seems like it's completely out of place. It's just like dropped into the middle of this conversation and you think to yourself, what's this? So let's read it. Verse 22, he says, the eye, now wait a minute, what's the eye? Relative to the rest of the body, the eye is the object of sight. It's what allows you to see and therefore to direct the rest of your body. So like you're walking down the sidewalk, there's a big manhole cover or whatever uncovered. There's like a hole in the sidewalk because you have eyes. If they work properly, you see it. And what do you do with the rest of your body? You go around it. The eyes enable the rest of your body as well to avoid the perils of life. It's with the eye that you see, says the eye, is the lamp of the body, at least in the sense that it brings light, if you will. You can see in light is the idea. And it allows the whole body to avoid the perils of life. And so then he says, if your eye is healthy, which is to say if you're able to see clearly, well, then your whole body will be full of life. Your whole body will benefit because, well, you'll avoid that open hole, many open holes. But if your eye is bad, if you are blind, then your whole body will be full of what? What do you live in if you're blind? Even if the sun is out, darkness, darkness. But then here's the worst condition of all. He says, if then the light in you is darkness, he's saying, if then you think that you're able to see well, 2020, lights are on. That's what you think. But in fact, you're blind? Oh, wow. Well, then how great is the darkness, he says, because at least when you're blind and you know it, you get a seeing eye dog or something, don't you? I mean, you take special precautions because you're aware of your blindness. So, you know, you know that there are holes and pitfalls and all that stuff. But if you think that you see clearly, but in fact, you're blind, you're just not aware of the fact that you're blind. Well, you don't take any precautions at all. You just charge straight ahead and wonder why you keep waking up in that same hole. And you say, well, Tom, you know, that's an interesting little dissertation on the eye and the body and light and darkness. And if I think that I see, but I'm really blind, it's a serious bummer and I might end up in a hole. What in the world does that have to do with the heart and treasure and money and what you trust in for your security and all of that stuff? Because not only does Jesus precede that little discussion on the eye, etc., with a topic of money, but he then talks about it immediately afterwards. Listen to what he says in verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. What an interesting word, master. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other, to which he adds, you cannot serve. Now he gives you two different masters, God and money. He's saying you you can't serve both, but you're still thinking, okay, but what is the discussion of the eye and light and darkness and my body and the whole, and I might be blind and I don't know it, have to do, therefore, with all of this discussion on wealth and what I trust in and earthly treasure and heavenly treasure, etc., because Jesus drops it dead center into the middle of the conversation. And I think what Jesus is saying here is this. I think he's saying, hey, guys, guess what? When it comes to this topic of money and possessions and your heart and what you really trust in for your security and significance and all of that stuff, you tend to think that you see clearly, but you're blind. 
And when you think that you see clearly, but in fact you're blind, oh, how great the darkness. He's coming to us and he's saying, let me tell you something about the sin of materialism that is different. It's a different kind of sin qualitatively, and here's why. It's something you do not tend to see in yourself. Other sins you can see fine. When you're stealing from someone actively, like you know it, you're not surprised to find it out, you know, as you're taking their wallet out of their back pocket. You know, it's like, you know it. When you're looking at somebody dead in the face, okay, and you're lying to their face, you don't, you're not surprised to find out that's what you're doing. You're doing it. You know that. What about greed? What about materialism? Okay, so I was a lawyer for 10 years. I've been a pastor now for a full 12 as of next weekend or this. I have had all kinds of people come to me to confess all kinds of different sins. There is essentially nothing in the world that can surprise me, I think, at this point. Seriously. Because either I've seen it or I've seen it in me. It's very humbling. Not one time has anyone come to me and said, hey, you know what I think my problem is? I think I'm greedy. I'm a materialist. That's my issue. The greedy guy is always the other guy, and it's always the other guy who has more than you, which, by the way, speaks to this blindness. You can be the poorest person in the room and the most greedy. You can be the wealthiest person in the room and the least greedy. And here's why. Because wealth has lost its shine, its charm for you. You've had it. You realize its limitations. You know what it can and cannot do that, you know, everybody else just imagines. There's a blindness to this. The love of money blinds us to our own love for money, which incidentally is why we never ask ourselves the hard questions in life. We are raised in a country where bigger is better and bigger is better and bigger is better. We're always just going bigger and better and bigger, and we just assume that's, you know, the right ethic. I don't, you know, care if you go bigger and better, but I, I do care that you don't stop every once in a while and go, well, wait a minute, maybe this is an opportunity to, I don't know, keep this car or whatever and instead of rolling it and... And make an investment in treasure in heaven. We don't even stop to think those things through. A lot of us have been involved in accountability groups over the years. I'm one of them. And what do you do in an accountability group? You invite scrutiny of your life. You know, I mean, you sit down, in my case, like with a group of guys, and we say, okay, I want you to ask me about this. I'm inviting you in because I know... That, you know, I mean, I could fall into any of these things. So I need active involvement in my life. I want you to ask me about my, you know, sexual ethic and integrity and my business ethic and integrity. I want you to talk to me about have I shared my faith this week. I want you to ask me about what my personal worship looks like. Am I in God's Word? Am I praying? You know, how are things going in my family, etc., etc., etc. What I realized this week, and this is true of every group that I've been in as well, I've never heard of an accountability group where the guys or the girls have sat down and said, okay, but what about this area of generosity? Because the reality is, man, this is powerful stuff, and we're all feeling the magnetic pull of trying to find our value by what we can achieve or accomplish or gain or have or whatever, and of trying to insulate ourselves trying to find our security in it. Never had an accountability group say to me, hey, Tom, tell me about your generosity. Tell me about your tithing. Tell me about how you give to the poor. The love of money blinds us to our own love for money. 
And it blinds us as well to what we already have and really ought to be thankful for and even contented with. It's amazing. It's like we get bigger and better and then we look for the next bigger and better and we forget what we just got. Guys, we are, all of us, all of us, incredibly blessed. 81% of the world's population of other people on this planet who share this same ball of dirt together with you, 81% of the world's population lives on an average annual income of $1,700. How you feeling? Like you just hit the lotto, right? Think about that. The median income worldwide is $7,000 a year, and that is an inflated number. I want you to think of how low it has to go because it includes everyone in the U.S. That's startling. Rarely do we stop and say, you know, I am so thankful for what you've given me. Lord, it's really wonderful. and I'm contented and quite thrilled. I'll tell you, lastly, at least as I've written it down, I think the love of money blinds us to the needs of other people. And here's why. Because if you're looking to it for your significance and security, then the needs of other people represent a threat to your significance and security. And so here's what you want to do, and even in fact do, but you're blind to it. You kind of go through life going, oh, I don't want to see, I don't want to see, I don't want to look, I don't want to look, I don't want to see, I don't want to see. Oh, my goodness, he's walking over here. Good grief. I don't want to make eye contact. You know, look, and he might not be the guy to help, but really... However, the flip side of that is also true. And I think it provides a good test for our hearts. I think that when you find your significance and security really and truly in Jesus, and I think that's a process. You grow in this as you grow in Him. But as that is true for you, you're free to become generous because in Him you have what you need, you see. Need is a key word, incidentally. But you have everything that you need. And here's what happens. You actually begin to actively look for ways to help other people and meet other needs. And so the blessed life that Jesus describes for us and invites us into is one that is lived by people who trust in God and, and not in what they can get or what they can gain or who they can become. and you know, Not in that kind of stuff for security. And, and here's the deal. You can actually trust God, which is what Jesus turns to next in verse 25, where he says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Now, please notice that he doesn't say don't be anxious about anything. And I want to give us some things that I think we ought to be a heck of a lot more anxious about. The cause of Jesus as it goes into the world through local churches, through Christian schools, through Christian missionary organizations, and through all of these different parachurch ministries that scrape by and that exist to serve the poor and the needy in our communities in the name of Jesus. I think we ought to be a lot more anxious, and I'm preaching to me too, about that. I really do. But he doesn't say, you know, don't be anxious about anything. And I know that some of you are going, yes, but Paul says don't be anxious about anything. And he does say that, but I'll tell you, he certainly does not mean don't be anxious about the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. That's not what he means. I mean, if you look at 2 Corinthians 11... Paul gives to you this amazing list of unbelievably horrific things that he suffered thing after thing after thing after thing after thing after thing to advance the cause of Christ. My goodness, what urgency that man lived with. And then notice what he says in verse 28. He says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my what? Anxiety. There it is. 
For what? For myself? No, 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 no. For all of the churches, for the cause of Jesus in the world, it's the self-centered anxieties that Paul is saying, look, you don't need to worry about that. And that's what Jesus is, is going after here as well when he says in verse 25, therefore I tell you to not be anxious about your life, meaning about what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, for is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He's saying, look, will not the one who gave you life also give you food to sustain you? Will not the one who gave you your body also give you clothing? Now, it might not be exactly the same kind of food and clothing that you would really like. We've got to own that. He's talking about our needs. He is. And he's not saying, so don't worry about it. Sit on the couch, put up your feet, get out the clicker, turn on football, don't go to work tomorrow. Don't worry, you know, because God is going to magically keep your lights on and the power going and the air conditioning and, and, you know, food trucks are just going to just start showing up at your house, you know, like Publix Direct is going to be reinstituted and they're just going to serve you and God is going to make this all miraculously happen. That's not the way that it works. Paul says, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. There is wisdom to that. The Bible comes to us and says, six days you shall labor. Six? And on the seventh you shall rest. It's the work ethic of the Scriptures by which our country was built, frankly. So it does not condone laziness. It comes to us and says, you know what? The ant stores things up. There's some wisdom there. There is. But do we ask how much? You're like, Tom, you know what? Nobody likes to hear this message. I know. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I guess I could have skipped it. It would have been easier. But it wouldn't have been very helpful. On the one hand, there is no culture, I think, that has ever existed in which this could be a less popular message. On the other hand, I think there's no culture that has ever existed in which it is more needful. I do. Guys, trust in God for your security. Eternally in here, he's trustworthy. He is, and Jesus tells us as much. He says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. For is not life more than the food and body more than clothing? And then he says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns the way that we do which is a good thing. He's saying, so they don't even do what you're already doing, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are not you of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? In fact, you know, studies seem to suggest that it goes the other way, doesn't it? It's like the stress is killing us. And so why, Jesus asks, are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you, of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, the pagans, he's saying, seek after all of these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first. This is the bottom line. And first doesn't mean as, you know, like first thing in the day, although that's helpful. It really is. 
It means first in priority. As a matter of first and utmost importance, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all of these other material needs will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And that is wisdom from heaven, spoken by the man from heaven who stood as well and experienced life on earth for you. And for me. So, the blessed life that he describes is lived by people who trust in him. Not in what we can figure out, not in what we can gain, not in what we can scheme, not in what we can work up, not in what we can store up or whatever else for our security. And the question is, look, after listening to the whole message, in whom or in what do you find your security? And let me just ask it a little differently. Where are you laying up your treasure? With your time, with your talents, and with your resources. Are you laying them up in earth? And if so, examine that. What does the spiritual MRI say about why that is? Or are you laying them up in heaven? Is there an investment plan by which you're taking care of that treasure and storing that up too? Because the logic's simple. And Jesus, as the great physician, is saying, listen, I know it's a tough message. I mean, like, seriously, it is. But it's for life. It's for health. And it's for his glory and kingdom. Okay? So think about that today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we um, come to you mindful that you uh, first came to us. Um, We are thankful for heaven's high king, who once upon a time stood up and disrobed, laid aside his glory and all of his majesty, clothed himself in the flesh of a servant, and entered into this world truly as a peasant. Lord, that he might exalt us as he lays his life down for our sin and is raised again for the dead or from the dead. Lord, that we might have life. God, I pray that we might take his example to heart, that we might hear his wisdom from another world as the one who has himself spanned to both places, who is himself the truth. I pray, Lord, that as Hannah sang, that we would open our hearts. God, that we will hear your truth. And in faith, receive it, and by your spirit and in community with one another, for your glory, learn to live it. Lord, convict us about heavenly treasure. Lord, use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.